I'm part of you. And the body of Christ uh, would be nothing without you. Isn't that strange? But uh, we, during these times when you can opt out, committing to being together, worshipping God, sharing our faith, our love for God together with a, with a desire to be prepared and sent out uh, is so important. Um, people are choosing and opting out for lots of reasons. Uh, I believe that we're entering into a time in our world where there will be a great falling away uh, and opposition against our faith will rise. Jesus actually predicted that that would happen. So, uh, there are definitely places in the world where persecution against Christianity is on the increase, but it has been like that historically for thousands of years. But there are places in the world where uh, things uh, have laws against meeting together like this. But then it's also getting hard because of the restrictions that the policies to respond to COVID have, have created, which is making it hard for us to meet together, to celebrate, to, to pursue God. And the other thing that's making it hard, I think, is people get so scared of losing what they have they bunker, in, bunker down and become completely about themselves. And they stop going, what can I do uh, to love others who are my brothers and sisters and to love those who are not my brothers and sisters outside of the church? And I think there's a great opportunity because I think what's happening is, is there's going to be a great falling away where people start compromising and start falling away to take safer options and options that, that protect their interests. But at the same time, I think there's going to be a great rising up of persecution as well but at the same time i see this absolute coming in and i see there will be people who are just get fired up for jesus and they have their renewal of their first love and there's a bringing it in that comes and so my prayer is i'm, I'm saying to you guys i want you to be a part of the ones that that go yes to jesus i want us to be a church that says god we want more and we want to go out with more uh, we want um, to, to send others to go. We want to send ourselves out, but we want to go with you. And we want you to send us. And last time I spoke to you, um, I shared about get, um, getting unstuck and how God wants to get us unstuck and that his desire is that we be with him, that he might send us. And today I want to talk to you about this idea of what it means to follow him. And um, I want to, that what I want to leave you today is, are you getting what Jesus paid for? That's a good state. Uh, yeah, has anybody heard that before? Are you getting what Jesus paid for? There's lots of different ways to think about that statement. But I want to go through a really important chapter in Matthew chapter 16. So you might just get your phones if you've got Bibles on your phones or the, the paper copy um, the version. We're just going to quickly run through Matthew 16. Now, I reckon that you can't read Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission where Jesus says, go into all the nations and make disciples of all nations and baptise them, um, etc., without understanding Matthew chapter 16 and what Jesus was asking his disciples to do, because those two chapters work together. And what we've got in Matthew 16, verse 1 to 4, you, we, this whole chapter, and I'm going to do a quick uh, scan through this chapter, but Matthew has just told us the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000 in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, 1 to 4, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. Now, it's an interesting little moment because they were actually hate, they actually hated each other. 
They disagreed on so many things. Um, they believed in the one God, but they disagreed on what books of the Bible were in and what books of the Bible were out. So the Pharisees were the whole of the Old Testament. The Sadducees were just the five, first five books. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife and a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't. And uh, the Pharisees considered the Sadducees the modern-day equivalent of liberals. It's like, yeah, right, okay. And, they, and the Sadducees believed that they were the masters and interpreters of the law. And so did the Pharisees. And they were arguing about whose version of it. And the Pharisees loved the prophets and what they said. And, how, and they didn't want what the prophets had warned had come true to happen ever again. So they became these guys that said, we want Israel to be pure and in love with God and to follow his word. And the Sadducees had their own version of it. Interestingly, they had a common enemy. Who was it? What they did not believe about him is they did not believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, I want you to think about this. When they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, son of Joseph, a carpenter of Nazareth, what were they saying? First of all, we know the sign given to Isaiah that Messiah would be born of a virgin. We know your father. You cannot be the Messiah. But the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus this day and they had a, a worldview or a view of Jesus where they were setting their mind on their understanding and they said, we need you to do a heavenly sign for us. And so Jesus said, there's only one sign that you're going to get this evil and wicked because the, the, the deal was is that um, throughout Old Testament, the Messiah would come just after the peak of great evil like the worst things that happen. And we know that this great evil upon the earth and coming and increasing before Jesus returns again. What they didn't know is that Jesus would come twice. And they come and they say, show us a heavenly sign, prove it beyond belief because, we, yeah, we, we get it. You, you fed 4,000 and Moses did the same. He was a prophet, but you're not Messiah. And Jesus said, there's only one sign I'm going to give you. It's the sign of Jonah. Now you tell me, what was the sign of Jonah besides the big fish thing? Linda, you're just doing this. Three days, really what, what the big picture was is going into the ocean was the sign of going to Sheol. It was dying. It was going to death and then coming back to life. And that was the sign that Jesus said. And it's interesting, that was Jesus' Jesus' Jesus's message, Messiah's going to die and rise again. And no one got it. But he said, this is the only song you're going to get. And they missed it. And then if we go to the next part of the passage, we see Jesus connects these two to this, this interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and um, the, the disciples have forgotten to pack lunch and someone said, oh, no, it was your turn to bring the bread. No, no, it's, no, it's your turn. And they're all arguing over the fact that they only had one loaf of bread between all 12 of them and that's not enough, you know that. Um, so they're arguing. Jesus says this really strange thing, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they then start arguing and questioning what was he talking about because Jesus liked to just say things like that to confuse them and they're starting to argue and, and then Jesus has to go, look, this is what it's like. He said, when I fed the, the 5,000, how many loaves did you have left over? When I fed the 4,000, how many loaves did you have left over? And, and it says right at the end of this little, little thing in verse 12, he said, Jesus was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
what, which was a cynical, unbelieving heart towards him. And Jesus was looking at them and he's going, why are you showing signs of a cynical, unbelieving heart when I've shown you what faith looks like? Well, throughout the stories of Jesus, you can look at um, Jesus' rebuke to the disciples and you'll find one of two things. You could either say that they should have asked him to do something or you could say that he was looking for them to do something in his name. I prefer the second. I think he was teaching them to walk in apparent authority of his name and he was looking for them to believe that God could do the impossible. And, and that when, when they failed to do that, he was disappointed and he told them, oh, you of little faith. He wanted them not to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who couldn't get their head around Jesus and, they, and he wanted them not to walk in a spirit of cynical unbelief because they were trying to figure it all out. Then we get to this little story where Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi and, and this is a whole sermon in itself and I'm not going to go there. But Jesus says, um, who do people say that I am? And they answer him. And, um, and then he says, but Peter, who do you say I am? And you know what his answer was. He says, you are the Christ. Now the word Christ simply means for the Jewish people in their thinking was king of kings was the anointed king who would reign forever. That's what they thought. So whenever you read Christ, think of king of kings. Because I, I actually connect with those words more than I do with the understanding of anointing being for king. But Jesus was king of kings. He said, you are the king of kings. You are the son of God. And then Jesus responds and goes, yes, Peter, you didn't come up with that. The father showed you that. And I will build my church on that. And, and I will give you, I'll give you authority to loose things and to bind things. And the gates of hell, Sheol, won't come against you. How cool is that? It's referring to that same story back at the top about Sheol, the sign of Messiah, that he would rise from the dead, that he would be buried three days and conquer death. Then, strangely enough, um, just moments later, a day later, Jesus is starting to tell them about this idea that Messiah would die and rise from the dead. And Peter's already said, you are king of kings and you are the son of God. And Jesus has actually complimented him and said, this is awesome, Peter. And then what happens? It goes to his head. He goes, he gets, he thinks, oh man, I got it right. So good. I am so with this, and then Jesus says, no, actually, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favourite term for Messiah, Son of Man's got to die and rise from the dead. And Peter then thinks, man, I got it right the last time. I'm going to tell Jesus what to, what it, how it is. And he goes, no, surely not, Lord. This should never happen to you. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me saying, let me ask you this question. Can, we, can the words of the Holy Spirit come out of you and me and then the words of our flesh and our own understanding come out of us as well? Yeah. Actually, I'm really comforted by the fact that, that God is merciful upon us all, right? That one day we get it right and the next day we get it wrong. It keeps you humble. Keeps from thinking that I'm constantly right and I know everything because I don't know everything. I'm more like Peter than anybody. 
But I love the fact that Peter um, tries to tell Jesus and Jesus actually treats him as if Satan's talking at him. Why? Because he actually becomes a mouth. He's a mouthpiece of the Father one moment and he's a mouthpiece of Satan the next. He's actually fulfilling his name because Jesus refers to him, Simon, you read. He goes, you bending, flipping guy. He said, you know, but Jesus is patient. He goes, okay, you're gone back to read, but I look at you and so remind you, you are the rock. Stop thinking like human. Think like me. Now, I just want to read this with you, uh, Matthew 16, 24. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, this is, this is um, by the way, there's a, there's a pivotal little verse um, right at the end of this story here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, hang on, I've got to go back. I've got to use this. Am I going backwards? Uh, Peter tries to get Jesus to see through the eyes of men. What's the little line? Can someone read out Jesus' final summary to Peter? What was he doing? At the end of that little section, verse 23, can someone read out what Jesus' summary in response to, to Peter saying, never? Yeah. This was the big thing. This is the pivot moment in this chapter. This is what was happening with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They had the things of man in mind, not God. And then the disciples with the, the bread had the things of man in mind, not God. Then, then Peter gets it right. He has the things of God in mind, not man. And then he gets it, flips it, and he goes, then he has the things of man in mind again. And then Jesus actually begins to say, this is what it looks like when you have the things of God in mind. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. For whatever um, will lose it. But whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. God's mind for the Son of Man and the Son of God was this. God's mind for Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God, was that he would deny himself, that he would take up the way of Jonah, not saving himself, taking the place of a condemned prisoner, carrying and dying on a cross, and then rising to destroy the gates of hell and the power of sin and death. That was God's mind, and Jesus went, I want my Father's will. Your will, not mine. I deny what I might have to save my life and I lay down my life. That's the God's mind for the Son of Man and the Son of God. And then there is God's mind for us as disciples. And I believe that there is a price worth paying for us to be like Jesus and to receive everything that Jesus has done for us. There's a price worth paying to follow after Jesus. And, and it says, 
uh, in, in Jesus' words, for my sake, that you would deny yourself, that you would lose your life, that you don't try and save your own soul. I think one of the greatest sins of humanity is, is that we think that we can save ourselves. But the, the heart of being a, a follower of Jesus is actually saying, no, I can't rule myself. I need God to rule me. And denying my right to rule myself is the beginning of being a Christian. And there is a price worth paying for everything that Jesus paid for. The price that Jesus paid uh, for you to have salvation, for you to be saved, for you to be forgiven, for you to know God, for you to be restored to everything that he has done for you is surrendering. There is a price. You can't, there's nothing you, you could do to earn his favour. There's nothing you could do to earn or make yourself right, to save your soul. Only what Jesus has done, what he's paid for can save your soul. However, Jesus says, if you want to come and follow me, there is a price to pay. Do you get it? Am I saying that you can do something to save yourself? But you can do something to respond to everything Jesus has paid for. And what, what Jesus is saying is, is that you've got a choice here. And he goes here. Jesus took up his cross to give us everything. And what's his, what's his reward? Where are you? I don't know about you, but I look at humanity and I go, what a reward. Jesus looks at us and goes, what a reward. You are mine. And he gave up everything. He, he put everything of himself onto the cross and he gives us everything and we are his reward. Then Jesus calls us, those who would come and follow after him, and he says, now follow my example, take up your cross, lose your life for my sake. Everything he paid for then is our reward. It's not a reward for anything you've done. It's a reward for actually laying down your life. It's for following his example. Um, in the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, it says, um, if you would be my disciples. The NIV translate, if you would follow after me. Remember I said that at the beginning, Jesus um, Jesus' call in Mark 3 was to, to that you might be with me, that I might send you. The other hallmark of being a disciple was if you would follow after me. And Jesus describes following after him in terms of his death and his resurrection. And he says, this is what it's like to follow me, people. It's not easy. You've got to be prepared to be scorned, ridiculed, You've got to be scorned to be rejected by men. You've got to be prepared to give up what the world is offering. Jesus was offered the world by Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. What did he say? I shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. Jesus was offered the world without the cross. And Jesus said, no, it's going to be taken with death and resurrection. This is the way of the Son of Man. And Jesus calls us as his disciples to go, I will lay down my life for this. Everything that Jesus died for, I will lay my life down for. A, worth, a faith worth dying for is a faith worth living for, people. I love that. My faith 
is worth dying for and it's worth living for. But how do you live? How do you live out your faith? Jesus said, if you want to come after me, then you've got to deny yourself. What does that look like? Now, I want you just going to get in groups and I just want you to ask, what is denying yourself? What does taking your cross mean to you in everyday life? All right, you've got two minutes. All right. Here's um, just something to, that I, I just in finishing. Some of my challenges that I've experienced in denying myself and taking up my cross might be actually um, to stop worrying about what people think about me. One of the examples of stop worrying about what people think about me is even in church, to stop worrying about my physical expression in worship and worrying about what people think of me. I came from a church where you were looked down on if you showed any form of emotion or expression of worship. And it took me years to go to, over the fear of what people thought of me. And I realised as I read the Gospels, the fear of what people think of me is a massive thing for all of us. We worry so much about what people think about it but we actually have got to be more concerned about what God thinks about and be more concerned about pleasing him and following after him and, and doing the things that he wants. So that's a big challenge for me. The way I spend my money, uh, for years I, I gave 10%, but the Lord challenged me. He said, 10% is a great start, Paul, but he said, are you willing to give whatever I ask you? So we've, Michelle and I just work on the principle that 10% is a great uh, devotional discipline of giving that reminds us constantly of the goodness of God and the response to him. But we then go, Lord, but whatever, whatever it is that we have that you want us to give away, just show us the need and we will try with, with the resources you've given it to meet it, to go beyond, not to be limited by a, a number, but to exceed that number because that's what the Spirit does. Why? Because he is faithful. But... You know, the fear of not having enough, overcoming that, denying that and taking up the cross that says, Lord, I know there's resurrection power coming through this sacrifice now. So, Lord, I, I trust you with your faithfulness. Uh, I, think of, um, I think of Bobby and Branwen Mearns, who for years had um, disciples coming off the street who became Christians living in their home and what that meant for them and what it means for them to open their home on a Tuesday night and a Sunday night and have people who are straight off the street in their home and then people who become Christians coming out of addiction, living in their home and what that costs them and what costs them as a family. What costs them in space in terms of their focus, in terms of what they get out of this, this life. But I think, what are the reward? You know, I just see some of the guys that come here on a Sunday morning get so blessed. And when I see examples like that and I see Sean and Ann and I see John and Betty and I see Roger and I see Abby and Rach and I see the people who are just, there's Rach, um, I see the people who are just saying, you know what, I want to fully sell out and, and to serve you or go wherever, whatever. I am so humbled and blessed. And some of you live your lives like that, but I want to say to you, let's all together recognize that, that, that there is a price and there is a reward.
And the reward is everything that Jesus died for. But the price that he asks us is to stop worrying about the world, stop worrying about men, stop worrying about yourself, and deny yourself. Lose your life. Stop worrying about controlling and keeping your life. Lose your life. Because if you lose your life, you will save it. This is the irony. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. I love Jesus so much. I'm so grateful that I'd like to be like one of the Columbine students when the guy comes up to them, held a gun to their head and said, are you a Christian? Having seen someone else being shot for the very same thing and they have a moment in their life where they get told, they get asked the question, if you're a Christian, I know that you'll pull that trigger and I'm dead. And they said, yes. Now, that's an extreme measure of what it is to deny yourself, right? It's an extreme measure, an example. But I want this love that I hold for Jesus to be like that in the simple, in the daily, in the, in the things that I've talked to you about. I want to pray for us in finishing. I believe that God is going to, to, to call some of you to go beyond where you are right now. He's sending us. Sending out as ones who deny themselves and take up their cross and then say, Lord, I will go anywhere, do anything, give anything for this cause because it's worth dying for, it's worth living for. So I'd like you to consider yourself before the Lord and just open yourself up right now to, to surrender again afresh everything that you have and everything that you are and, so, and just offer yourself as a living sacrifice again. So I'm going to ask you to stand. This is so when we bring it in, we not only bring our gifts that are financial, but we bring in everything. That's what I love about this day. It's a reminder that the call to follow after him is a call to deny ourselves and take up our cross. There is a price to pay, but there's a reward. So, Lord Jesus, every part of us, you know it all. You know the stuff that we hold on to tightly and really struggle to let go of. You know the stuff that controls us and there's a part of us that doesn't like it. We've given ourselves to things that we shouldn't have and we haven't given ourselves to things that we should have. Holy Spirit, we welcome the presence. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Holy Spirit, help us to deny ourselves. Holy Spirit, we thank you that your conviction is matched with your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we are not to be in a place as condemned men, but men who have been saved from condemnation. We thank you that on the cross, you paid the price for us so we could freely give up ourselves, as Paul said, as slaves of the cross, servants of Christ. Lord, this, we're free men giving ourselves to you. We're free women giving ourselves to you. We want to live daily a life where we deny ourselves and live a life 
which has the death and resurrection in it, God. We offer our lives to you now again afresh. We bring them to you. We say, Lord, have your way in us. Take us where you want us to go. Help us to do whatever you want us to do. Help us to, to know you and to live with you. It's a holy moment. A holy moment is a dedication moment. We dedicate our lives to you. Dedicate our lives. I see God's fire falling upon people's heads that have surrendered things to him. The Lord says, I receive your surrender. I'm bringing spirit and power upon that. Your surrender is mighty. Your laying down is powerful. And I will use your denying of yourself, the laying down of your life. I will use this for my glory, for out of death comes life. My life is greater than the death. My reward greater than your laying down. I have so much I have for you. It can only be received through this. Now receive it. Holy Spirit, just breathe on them now.